I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Langston Khan, a New York City-based shamanic practitioner specializing in emotional clearing and radical transformation. He stands firmly at the crossroads, his practice informed by the Western modality of inner relationship focusing, initiations into traditions of the African diaspora, the contemporary shamanic tradition of the last mask center, and the guidance of his helping spirits and ancestors, weaving it all together. His new book is Deep Liberation, Shamanic Tools for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma. You can follow him and learn more at his website, langstoncon.com. That's L-A-N-G-S-T-O-N-K-A-H-N.com. And follow him at Instagram, at langstoncon. As with all Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there is a video accompanying this episode at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics and Poetry from Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T R A P A R T.net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A-2-3-C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. Langston, it's so nice to see you. I missed you. Yeah, it's so good to be with you, Vanessa. I miss you too. I'm so excited to talk about your new book. Yes. Um, yeah, it was so helpful too to to have your um, perspective in the writing it to, writing of it. So I just appreciate you and the, and the way um, your work in the world of really looking at this intersection between western modalities of deep inquiry into the mind and the soul and psychoanalysis and the ways that we also engage across different traditions western otherwise uh, in the unseen world and seeing how those two perspectives can inform each other 
and definitely your way of um, bringing forth that mission in the world and all the inspiring, incredible people you've introduced me to in both of those worlds really inspired the book in part as well. So thank you. That's amazing. I was so glad to be able to read it before it came out. Yeah. And of course, you we were at both psychoanalysis art and magic conferences, the one in London and the one in Italy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was just an incredible experience, both of them. Um, but I was especially just remembering the one in Italy um, where I gave the talk on looking at some of Jung's work in the context of a shamanic perspective. And that intersection in that in that place that you put together of art, the occult, and psychoanalysis um, really just felt so healing to be in as a container because I think so often we're, we hyper-specialize, you know, and we're, and we're taught that these things need to be treated as separate and it's maybe even dangerous to combine them in some way. And so to feel these different practitioners that were deeply rooted in their respective fields and also had intersections in other fields was just really healing to feel that reweaving and coming together um, that feels like one of the core wounds in a sense of psychology as a field. Yeah, that's really true. And I really found that to be the case at these conferences too. Like everyone, even though they do come from their traditions or perspectives, is very like open and really listening. Whereas I found that a lot of different kinds of conferences, like academic conferences, they're like, it feels more like people are kind of waiting their turn to speak and not really taking in so much what everybody's talking about. But at, at these events, it really has felt that way that everyone's like really interested in each other's perspectives and integrating it. And then people have like become friends afterwards and like made projects from that which have been really enjoyable as well mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean certainly I know my experience was that I couldn't wait to listen to each lecture and got so much out of them yeah they, you're both I don't know if you know this but both of your lectures actually from the two conferences have been rendering unconscious podcast episodes so for yes. people who are like real listeners that listen all the time, they will have heard those two talks. And then for those who haven't heard them yet, I'll link to them in the text that goes along with this episode so that people can easily access them. Because something about your talks, every time I hear you talk, I always feel like if you just exchange like the word soul for like mind, this is like really what psychoanalysts are talking about. And it's just for some reason, a lot of them like maybe more in academia, just like more narrow-minded. If you bring in the word soul, then it gets like, they, they like won't touch it, you know? But I feel like there's also a, someone who's like retranslated Freud and they said that the original person who translated Freud was trying to make him sound really scientific um, and using like really scientific terms because that was kind of the fashion of the day was to like get away from spirituality and go more into science. But that people have looked back at like the original German and said a lot of times he is talking about psyche and soul and not really using these scientific terms. Yeah, I love that you're sharing that. I mean, obviously the etymology of psychology is psyche and the soul. And uh, to me, what I think distinguishes perhaps shamanic modalities of healing uh, and cross-cultural indigenous approaches to healing from psychology is this understanding, and not just psychology, but, but all different types of Western modalities that, like I said, become so hyper-specialized, like we deal with the body, we deal with the mind. 
there's this understanding that the, the mind, the body and the emotions and the spirit can all equally be sources of illness. And we need to be able to diagnose from that holistic perspective without assuming that just because two people have the same symptoms, that means the root of those symptoms is the same. And so I think, yes, I think sometimes you can exchange ways that the mind get talked about in psychology, talked about in psychology for how I talk about the soul and shamanism. And sometimes, sometimes that's because um, I think certain aspects of psychology can be overreaching sometimes for what the mind is actually capable of doing. Like, I think there's times when the, when the issue really is an issue of the soul and the mind isn't going to help. And then psychology has lots of tools for, I think, engaging the soul deeply, but maybe when we use the word mind instead of soul, we can bring in preconceptions about how the mind works to the soul that are actually perhaps constrictive or, or in conflict with how I see at least the soul actually functioning. Well, will you talk a little bit more about that, about the soul functioning? And I love also when you talk about like, like picking up pieces from past traumas and that sort of thing that have been kind of split off over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, at least I, I think from a shamanic perspective, and I should say when I use the word shamanism, how I think about this, I'm talking about small s shamanism versus big s shamanism. So big s shamanism, I would say, is sort of like Siberian shamanism, Mongolian shamanism, Korean shamanism, these, these traditions where the word shaman actually originally derives from before it got applied cross-culturally by the religious scholar Mircealiati. And, you know, he spent a lot of his academic capital to put forth the idea that the people we see that we might call within his definition, um, shamans cross-culturally in different indigenous cultures were not crazy or hucksters as they were being you know, called in academia at the time, but actually held a really vital living tradition that was an important piece of humanity's legacy. And so I think now we can look back on his work and sort of cry appropriation and that we shouldn't be using that word to apply cross-culture necessarily. And I think that can be true. There can be harm that's done if we don't understand that context. But so for me, how I, understanding the problematic nature of the word shamanism to be applied cross-culturally, I just sort of in my head, I'm thinking, okay, small as shamanism, this cross-cultural term for the specific role of someone who's tending the health of the individual and their soul, the individual and their family, the family and their community and the community and the spirit world and their environment, which are like sort of one and the same um, versus the specific cultural role that comes from like the Evenki people, for example, using this word shaman that then get, got translated by, um, you know, Russian ethnographers. So that's just a little aside to, to say that um, I don't want to like bulldoze over the importance of, of how that word can be abused and, and how I'm specifically using it in this moment. But given all that, what I'm talking about when I talk about the function of the soul and in relation to trauma, like you were saying, is from a shamanic perspective, there can be moments when we lose access to a part of our soul, a part of this deepest part piece of our essential self. And there's a way that the relationship between that 
part of who we are gets severed because it's too painful to hold onto that part of ourself given the circumstances of our life in a given moment. Or, you know, in shamanic and animist modalities, we believe, you know, our soul has its own agency and the many aspects of ourself have their own agency too. So that part of our soul that holds a certain gift can also make the decision like, you know, in the current environment I, I'm in right now, this gift is going to be abused, it's going to be harmed, it's going to be distorted in some way. I'm not willing to let that happen. So I'm choosing to leave in this moment. I'm choosing to leave this larger complex of the soul to go somewhere else for now, because it's not safe for this to be accessible in this environment that I'm in. And so either because we abandon a part of our soul or the soul chooses to leave, we can lose these vital parts of ourselves that are necessary for us to do what we're here on this earth to do. And what then happens is we adapt. You know, humans are incredible adapters. So we learn ways of being in the world and surviving without access to this vital part of ourselves. And so part of how that's different than a wound of the mind, I think, is when we try to solve soul loss, for example, solely through the lens of the mind. I'm not saying that the, the work of the mind isn't vitally important. I think it is. But when we solely are working through the mind, what's happening is that that part still isn't there to access. So when we get someone or when we get ourselves to navigate towards that place in ourselves where that hole is, where that part of our soul should be, we often feel this crushing sense of hopelessness or despair um, that is kind of untenable. There's not much we can do with that. So then we, we just continue to learn better ways of adapting with the mind to work around that missing part. But there isn't that foundational healing happening that would allow that part of us to come back and repair our relationship with the whole of our authenticity and our ability to show up that way in the world. That's amazing. And I, I've ever since you've explained this kind of soul retrieval idea perspective um, to me, I've been so interested in it and I've mentioned it to other people and referred them to you, of course. <laughs> and um, when I was, uh, I had this experience when I was um, 15, my mom kind of lost it and kicked me out of the house. And I stayed in this um, abandoned hotel that was nearby, nearby my house with my friend, Jessica. And um, when I had my first book come out in 2016, you know, I, I was with Carl at the time and the book launch in Miami was really close to the, the hotel and like where I grew up. So it was kind of this moment of like going back to this place and like having this book come out, which was like a great moment. Like, oh, I've made it, you know, <laughs> I've, I've survived, I'm okay. Um, and then Carl also being a magically minded person he's like, we should stay in that hotel because now it's not abandoned anymore. It's fixed up uh, and, and functioning. And I was like, really? Wow. Okay. And so we did it. We stayed in the hotel and he was like, you know, we, me and Jessica, we specifically stayed on the ninth floor and we called it planet nine. And um, we like, she brought a mattress up there and it was like, it was safer up there because most people won't climb that many flights of stairs. And uh he was like, Carl was like, how do we get them to let us stay on the ninth floor? And I was like, well, if I have any idea how this works, we don't need to tell them anything, you know, that <laughs> it will just happen. And sure enough, uh, when we got there and they gave us our room, it was on the ninth floor. 
And uh, when we were like taking the elevator up and like walking down, it was such a surreal experience. And they actually, of, co- of course, um, had us in the room, like right in the same corner. It was like the Southwest corner of the building um, where we had our mattress set up. Oh, even talking about it, I'm getting shaky. And so like the view out the window was the same view that we had and it was just so weird, but it was such a visceral experience. And I was thinking of you when we were doing that. And it was like really like a physical experience that I was having, like being back in that place and kind of, I could really feel this like soul retrieval kind of happening while we were there. It was really intense, but I think I might've told you that when I came back to New York after that. (laughs) Yeah, but I love that story. Um, Yeah, it's so beautiful how when we hold this understanding of the importance of the soul that our uh, culture, whether it's even even hyper-religious culture seems to sort of deny sometimes the importance of the soul in the way that the soul is othered as this sort of like pure thing we need to live up to or, or something we need to sort of keep tight control on so we get to go to heaven or something, you know, versus feeling that our soul is this essential part of us that is something we want to strive to be in loving accountability to and that when we do life becomes so much richer just like you were saying like we can revisit these places that were of deep importance to our soul that left marks on our soul and choose to consciously engage that dance in a way that we feel the world responding to us and us as we respond to the world yeah and that interplay i feel like that's lost a lot in kind of popular culture as well is like the interplay between the environment and us and it's not like it's not like this static thing and it's just this just like empty material reality there's really like a a back and forth yeah that it's all living um and that life is paying attention to us i mean you know how i think about uh, so part of the work i do is the more shamanic healing work and soul retrieval and ancestral healing and these kind of like um kinds of healing that require someone doing work on your behalf but I also guide people in work that's really about them showing up with accountability to their own hearts and not so much me doing something on their behalf but just guiding them deep into their own inner landscape and in that work a big premise of it is that our life and our body and our soul are constantly conspiring to bring us into relationship with parts of ourselves that are stuck in moments where we made a choice out of fear to survive that wasn't quite in alignment with our authenticity. And if we think of authenticity as sort of like living process that's constantly evolving and changing, just like the earth and the living world is this living thing constantly evolving and changing, then when we make these choices out of fear, those parts can become stuck out of relationship with that larger living self. And so we continue when we encounter similar situations to make the same choices. Um, And this is how I think of like, you know, the psychological term of triggers as these moments when we're amping up or shutting down in response to something as a way of beginning, like, like life trying to show us, hey, there's this part of you that's still stuck in the past. That's not in the present moment where you actually have the power to create change. And we can work with the wisdom of our body to track back to those selves that are stuck in those moments and help them to receive what they needed to be able to come back into that living process that we are. 
yes it's like these parts are like cut cut off and kind of like frozen in a way or deadened in a way but they're not whether they're not engaging with like the living now mm-hmm. exactly and sometimes sometimes it's it's it might not feel like a freezing or a deadening but more like you know this irrational anger that's coming we don't know why but it's just bursts up and we express it to the people we love the most even though they're not really who generated the anger in the first place or it might express this intense you know jealousy that's arising that we don't understand why we're feeling and if we're willing like you said to not see life as this dead world and we're just isolated individuals like a cluster of biochemical processes that are wandering around this plane completely disconnected from each other not ever able to understand each other's experience if we if we accept the premise that actually the world is alive and trying to speak to us and our own soul is alive and trying to speak to us then we understand that emotions aren't something to be managed or regulated, but actually these messengers of our soul trying to bring us, bring us back into relationship with ourselves and that they will, if we're willing to actually listen to them and let them guide us without becoming completely identified with them or pushing them away and exiling them, keeping that relationship of compassion and curiosity with our emotions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that speaks a lot to this problem with, with like, treating symptoms as something just to like manage like you said or get rid of or just taking medication and like kind of numbing it when really you need to listen to these things that are coming up because if you, if you think of this as like some sort of wound that happened some splitting off then it makes sense it's like striking a nerve it's like what what's going on there something's happening let me pay attention and try to understand it exactly yeah and I feel like we underestimate how much of our contemporary discourse around emotions and trauma, like even the idea of emotional regulation comes out of people who were living in really mechanistic cosmologies where they saw humans as machines and we're not machines. You know? So I don't, I think we have to really, it's important to me personally in my practice to trouble metaphors that are grounded in that kind of mechanistic cosmology and think about so how might I treat my emotions differently if I didn't see myself as a malfunctioning machine when I'm having big intense emotions but I actually saw them as messengers that there's no positive or negative emotion but they just have messages that I need a container to translate and understanding sometimes I can't be my own container sometimes I need a friend or a therapist or someone that's holding this container for me to be able to engage with those messages, but that they're, they're not something to be fixed or solved. Yeah, exactly. And that if it's a loud message, it's probably loud for a reason because it's probably popped up quieter before and you haven't been listening to it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Will you talk more about also like um, working with your ancestral lines? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ancestors are a huge part of my practice. Um, I think especially for me, one of the reasons I became an ancestral specialist is just because I was so lost in relationship to my own ancestors. You know, I'm someone who um, on my mother's side, it's really hard to track back a lot of our ancestors because many of my ancestors were enslaved peoples in that line. And so, you know, just aren't a lot of records available or the records that are there are just very hard to work through and I haven't been able to, to make much headway. Um, but in that line, I also have um, 
Scottish ancestry because of, you know, overseers that raped some of my um, Black ancestors. And I also have, um, you know, Sephardic and Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. I'm not sure where it comes from in that line. Um, but so there's a lot. And then on my dad's line, he is um, German, Jewish and Swiss and also some like, you know, British ancestry as well. And so for me, growing up, I didn't have a huge connection to ancestors. My parents hadn't really valued that kind of connection. And I didn't really know stories or names very well. And so I felt really isolated from that kind of web of home, real sense of home and belonging that you might gain from that kind of grounding in ancestry and grounding in the land that your people come from. And so I was kind of stuck having to go the spirit route to understand that because I didn't have a lot of physical information or you know, tracking of the lines to dig through. But what was interesting is um, when I started that journey, I was working with a Wiccan coven at the time, actually, this is many years ago, like maybe like 11 years ago. And we did this ritual on Samhain or on Halloween and there was a medium there and the medium ended up channeling my grandmother on my father's side, this, this um, incredible woman who's a famous pianist. And the first thing she said to me, I, I, I still have chills when I talk about it. She just, the medium looked straight at me and she said, the, it, was, it was a man, but he was telling my grandmother, my grandmother said, don't believe everything you've heard about me. I'm going to tell you more about me and more about your ancestors. And then she left and that was it. But the medium knew nothing about my relationship with her. My family had always told mostly horrible stories about her. And that's all I'd really gotten. I'd never heard anything else. Um, and it was like she was addressing that in that moment. And then within two weeks of her coming, my parents found this letter in their house that she had written to me for Langston when he writes his book that detailed these like generations of ancestors stories she had written down names that none of us had ever seen before. And I'm sure it was there. She wrote it when she was living, but it just popped up. So I know that she, me reaching out to make that connection resulted in her being able to reach out back even stronger. And that really led me on this path to to stumble through this, this relationship that a lot of us feel in the contemporary world of like brokenness with our ancestors and be willing to move into that discomfort because I knew there was something there reaching out to me and through engaging in a lot of healing work around my ancestral lines, eventually find they became a source of deep nourishment and resource and grounding and protection versus feeling just like this burden and this brokenness. And I think, you know, that's a, I think like that's a huge issue in the Americas because, you know, a lot of people that are there either emigrated there because of poverty or for some other reason, or they were brought there against their will as enslaved peoples. And then, of course, the people that are tied to the land through their ancestry and history were, you know, completely massacred, basically. Um, so there's a lot of lot of trauma around that and a lot of disconnection from from the roots and from the land for a lot of people absolutely and i think what can happen is we can do so much good personal work that allows us to kind of step out of the unresolved energy of our ancestors those like family patterns we can really do our work but if we're not addressing those patterns where they started in the ancestral lines it often feels like they overtake us back like a wave. Like we kind of feel ourselves stepping out and then it's like, 
this like flood just comes back over us. And there's a way that unresolved ancestral patterns create these kind of blinders on us where we hold these stories that we know aren't true. We, we know instinctively this isn't quite right. And yet they feel like reality to us. So we live our lives by them. And so I think for me, at least, I can speak for myself, ancestral healing was really vital in beginning to get leverage around taking off those blinders and clearing some of these deeper patterns in my own lines around internalized racism, internalized homophobia, internalized misogyny that were impacting my life that even after I did a lot of good work around myself, these certain beliefs and fears were still driving a lot of my responses until I addressed where they started in my ancestral lines. And so how do people start doing that? Yeah, well, there's a lot of different ways of more complex ancestral healing that you can do through, you know, I offer classes um, through the Last Mass Center and I also um, practice work um, by um, other modalities like, like Dr. Daniel Four has a method of ancestral healing. Christina Pratt has an ancestral a practice of ancestral healing. And both of those practices have been really helpful in my own practice. And I offer them with other people. But beyond sort of working with a professional practitioner of ancestral healing or engaging in an ancestral healing course where you're led through a ritual process where you can do this kind of work, the best place to start is just setting a place in your home for your ancestors. And I encourage you actually not to include any pictures in that space that you set aside that you might call a shrine, um, but rather put maybe a few objects or like a fabric or um, symbols that feel like the energy of your people to you, like the best parts of your lineage, what you hold as good and true and honorable and wise in your lineages that you want to call for. And then put maybe some water, like a, like a glass, a vessel for water, and a little light, like a place for a candle. And just offering that water and that light as an offering to your ancestor helping spirits and consciously calling out to the well ones in your lineage, not all the unresolved answers that you're not sure if they're well or not. And I can talk a bit more about that, but just really saying a simple prayer like ancestral helping spirits, you who hold all that is good and true and beautiful in my line, I'm calling you forth. I need your support. I want to deepen my relationship with you. Please be here now and guide me in this work of repairing our connection. And then just sitting and listening. And for many of us, that can be really challenging, the listening, the, the sort of more passive prayer of not like saying something, but actually seeing what the response is. Because we're trained by sort of often trained in much of monotheistic culture just to kind of like be looking up at something and praying, but not actually then receiving what's coming back in response as a real conversation and a dialogue. Now, I think about ancestors, not like worship. They're not these deities we're working with. They're family members we're wanting to engage as ecstatic co-conspirators with, you know, in our life. They want to help us do what we were dreamed to this earth to do. And so if you have a lot of doubt about your own capacity to listen, if that's a really new um, experience for you, one practice I found really helpful is writing love letters to the ancestors. 
and just write it, maybe setting a timer for like 10 minutes and writing for 10 minutes to the ancestors and then setting the timer for another 10 minutes and having them write back to you, like write back as the ancestors to yourself. And even though I say love letter, it can be complicated. There can be anger, there can be frustration. It's just like an intimate letter with a close family member that you're writing. And that can begin to open up that flow of communication a bit because we're engaging our imaginal capacity in that conversation, which can allow spirit to come in and start to bridge that gap. That's a beautiful idea. And I highly recommend people do contact Langston. And actually, I want to take an ancestral uh, course because I don't think I've done that specifically. I've taken other courses, but next time you have one of those, um, yeah. because I'm getting really into this right now, I think because of the move and finally getting settled here, this is like, I really want to do a deep dive more than I have because I've only been able to get kind of so far, you know. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to do that work with you. Um, and I guess the, the other, the context I didn't quite give is so one of the premises that I work on with ancestral healing is that not all ancestors are created equal. So in an indigenous context, the ancestors are often looked at as just this beneficent force of blessing and protection and grounding and home and wisdom. And that's understandable because in those, especially pre-contact indigenous cultures, there were intact practices of tending the dead well, of like when someone dies divining, was it a good death? Was it an accident? Was it their time? Was it not their time? And then based on what that divination says, also divining, you know, was this person able to move on successfully? Do they need support moving on? Is, are there things left unresolved with living members in the community? And what can we do ritually to reconcile those relationships so they're freed of those bindings and can just move on? And so that's being tended, not just individually, but as a whole community. And the whole community is being led in things like grief rituals that empty us out and allow us to release our attachments and really let the dead go. And also praise them for like show them through our tears and our grief how important they were in our life so they feel that honoring of their life as they're going too and we're so far from that in much of contemporary culture so some what you might call ancestors because they're people that are your family that have died are more like ghosts in that they haven't fully moved on they haven't from a shamanic perspective gone to the place where they can reconcile their life move into the ancestral realms have this experience of reuniting with what you might call like that sense of source or oneness um, and then been called back to give the wisdom that is the sum total of the choices they made during their lifetime so like if that's happened then ancestors true ancestors are this ideal helping spirit that can understand what it means to be human and what it means to be spirit and help us to better live well because of that understanding. Whereas if they haven't had that experience yet, they're still mired in the same beliefs they held when they were living. And then they often try to resolve that through their living descendants. They don't know how to resolve it. So they just end up reinforcing the same beliefs and you watch it snowballing down people's lineages getting worse every generation. That's a really good point. And another thing you often talk about too is how kind of contemporary society doesn't have like rituals to kind of graduate people to different, to, to adulthood, for example. Yes, yeah. And so, you know, from a shamanic perspective, the essence of our health and well-being 
is our soul's purpose. And that's not like to do something. It's not like to be a teacher, to be a psychologist. It's to, it's an energy that has never been seen in the world before and will never be seen again. It's like unique facet of the divine that can only be embodied by you in this particular lifetime. And so our measure of health and well-being is how much we're in alignment with that unique energy that we are and finding good vehicles for the expression of that energy, hopefully that meet the needs of the time that we're in, the unique needs of the time that we're in. And so when we are not supported in remembering that purpose through a process of like initiation into adulthood and an honoring by our community of helping us to step into that role and really tend it well in a way that is heart and meaning to us and to an, an impact in our community that we can see when we approach death, that often also is part of what leads to us dying unresolved because we, we, we reach the end of our life. We're like, I didn't do what I was here to do. That's a really scary thing. So I can get us stuck in that moment we're meant to be just releasing, you know, accepting what happened and, and moving on to the next adventure. But that gets in the way of that. So how do you feel now that you've written this book that your grandmother was talking about? <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. You know, I, I don't know if it's that book because <laughs> I didn't end up talking much about my, 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 my actual lineage in this book, but uh, maybe. Um, it certainly helped writing the book, having the connection to my ancestors. Uh, but I feel good. I'm really happy with how it's moving out into the world right now. Um, my vision with the book was just that I saw we're living in a time of such disconnection, you know, and so much division and ways that even, you know, those who have the best of intentions are furthering often the lie of separation. You know, what I would call the lie of separation, which is you know, that we are fundamentally separate from each other and fundamentally separate from the earth. So people, you know, things like, I hate using this term, I'm almost didn't even use it, but like cancel culture or call out culture. Like, I think that's a problematic term. And I, I appreciate, I forget who said this recently, maybe Lamarad Owens said accountability culture. I think that's a better name for cancel culture, but there's a way that we can approach these moments and people do need to be actually called back into relationship with themselves and, in, and with the earth as, as, as a calling in versus as a shaming and blaming and projection. And I think we're living in a time where so many of us feel so disempowered and just feel like at the mercy of these big forces that are beyond our control that it's very easy to project on visible people because um, in a sense of projecting our own powerlessness onto them, our own power onto them, and then demonizing them for not using their power in the way we would like to see our power used, in a sense. And so um, this is not that there aren't plenty of people doing horrible things that should be called out on it, but it's to say, I wrote this book as a way of, as an antidote, I hoping, hopefully as an antidote to a culture where a lot of us are walking around with the emotional bodies of children getting triggered and then projecting our triggers onto others instead of really unpacking them as the gifts they're meant to be to help us to reclaim these parts of ourselves that are stuck in these moments of fear. And so I hope in my life, when I've had moments of, for example, like racism I've experienced, doing that work sounds 
like really like an unfair ask for a black person maybe because like why should I have to do my personal work when someone else is just a racist asshole to me but for me it's been empowering because I'm not doing it for that person that was a racist asshole it doesn't mean that I have something to clear it means that they're not a racist asshole what it means is that there's a part of me that they're bringing into my awareness that still holds that internalized racism and I'm choosing to rescue that part of me so I no longer hold that narrative inside my body and then in the future be better able to respond in the moment to that kind of toxic energy in a way that has a chance of creating something new versus just being a reaction to what they're doing. Yeah, exactly. Not reacting so much, but really like having more space where you can like choose how you want to act in the world. And also I feel like there's racist assholes everywhere <laughs> and <laughs> we can't control them, you know, but we can kind of work on ourselves and how we react, like you said. Um, and we, we can't control what other people do, unfortunately. Exactly. And these larger systems that are powering the, the things like racism systemically are only powered by our unconscious engagement in them. Like systems are made up of individuals. So I think we can only change systems moving as a collective. So we have to work together. It's not just all about just do your personal work because that's important. And we also need to be doing that personal work not just enough to help us be comfortable, no longer in the discomfort of trauma, but enough that we have the resilience to be working in partnership with other human beings to create change. To create the systemic change. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's really my, my, my hope with the book is that it gives some foundational tools that I find in my life that allow me to be in community with other human beings without wanting to kill each other or just like, you know, dissolving the community in a slew of like projections and shadow and anger and like, you know, backbiting kind of energy, but actually to grow and evolve together as we work to extract from ourselves and extricate ourselves from these larger systems that we're all inhabiting and all shaped by that are causing harm in the world. Mm -hmm. Deep liberation. Yeah. <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Do you have any events or courses or anything coming up that you wanted to be sure to mention? Yeah, so the next course that I'm going to be offering, I think, is in um, January. I'll be offering Energy Body Mastery, which is like one of the foundational courses I teach around just helping us to learn how to human a little bit better. How do I have a strong sense of grounding in my body, not just be cerebral up in the mind, but really inhabit the wisdom of my body fully and connect to the earth and its wisdom. How do I create strong, healthy, flexible, intelligent boundaries that can move with me as I walk through my day versus just having like really strong walls that are up or nothing, you know? And how do I then engage in a deep process of self-inquiry to begin to come into relationship with the parts of me that consistently choose not to honor my boundaries, parts of me that choose to be ungrounded or dissociate and begin to bring them back into my wholeness. So I have the power to move my power and service to my vision. And so that will be offered in January. And this, I, I love teaching that class. And then I'm also for the first time teaching a course with my mom, which I'm really excited about um, on really on the felt sense and kind of bring it into conversation with 
Audre Lorde's essay, um, The Use of the Erotic as Power. I might be mis misquoting the title of that essay right now. But, um, and looking at how this, this energy of the erotic in us, not just as purely sexual, but as our truest desires and as the, like that impulse of the living process that we are can be a source of power and wisdom versus something we need to manage or control. And so it's the first time I'm teaching alongside my mom and I'm really excited to be doing that as well. Well, say more about that. What's your mom like? Yeah, so my mom is this incredible healer who I, you know, before I found any, before I found shamanism really, I mean, in some ways it was there my whole life, but before I was formally trained in shamanism, um, my mom taught me focusing, which is this process of, deep engagement with the wisdom of with the wisdom of the felt sense in your body this idea that you know a, a part of you that's wounded wouldn't know it was wounded unless it also knew what healing and forward movement felt like and so how do we engage that wisdom of the body that larger knowing of our body that's beyond words and begin to translate and interpret it so not just talking about the felt senses like i have a a nudge or, or a hunch or a sense of something that I can't put into words, but actually realizing we only come into relationship with the felt sense through words. So through this willingness to feel this maybe clenching in my gut and say, is, is clenching the best word? Maybe it's more of like a squeezing, sort of emotional quality of that squeezing, like really anxious squeezing in my gut. It'd be like a twisting action, like a twisting inward. And as I find the words that really describe accurately that sense in my body on its own terms, not trying to judge it or analyze or compartmentalize it, they just describe it on its own terms, it begins to unfold and reveal more of itself to me. Maybe it shows me like a younger self that's in that state of anxiety in my stomach, or maybe it's like something entirely different that is this part of me that thinks it needs to be doing what it's doing to survive. And so my mom is really a master of engaging that capacity of the body's wisdom and really gracefully moving herself and guiding others into this deep, compassionate surrender to what our body is wanting to show us in any given moment that our mind is so trained to ignore or like sort of protect ourselves from. And she's so good at just helping create this really safe container for people to this has dissolved into that depth of experience in their bodies. And you've used this word a lot, like not judging. It's, I feel like that's so important. And it's to like understand ourselves, look at ourselves, explore ourselves without judging. There's just too much judgment going on. And that just keeps all of these kinds of boundaries and defenses up. Yeah. And that's something I love about you, Vanessa, that I feel like your approach in general to um, psychology and analysis and, and just life <laughs> is just such this beautiful state of genuine curiosity and deep presence and engagement. Um, I, just, I just really appreciate that about you. I've always thought that was like an incredible quality of you, even in like sort of fraught situations or maybe people that are even harming you potentially in some way, there's still this like not never turning away from your boundaries and your sense of center, but holding from that place of center, this fierce curiosity and interest and in what is this human doing right now <laughs> it's true well there's always something to learn yeah <laughs> yeah 
Well, that's great. Did, growing up, so you grew up in kind of a magical household. Did you have a period where you were like not really part of that community or or that sense of self? Or did you have to like come back to it or was it kind of always there? You know, I, I grew up in a very magical household. My dad is a Buddhist priest and then my mother does this healing work. And yet also my relationship with spirit was very different than the relationship with spirit of my parents. I still had to sort of find my own path in that way, but I didn't have any of the sort of, um, you know, demonizing or, or fear of me going on that journey, which I know many people have to navigate and encounter. So that was a huge blessing. Um, but my dad, you know, he's a Zen Buddhist priest and also a psychotherapist actually. And so, um, his relationship with spirituality was much more this kind of Zen approach, just letting like whatever emerges, just let it dissolve, just get back to the pure mind, kind of this, this intense focus on, on the mind. But there's also obviously this deeper sense of what the mind is mm. and consciousness is. But whereas me, I was much more interested in like going out to the cemetery to talk to dead people, <laughs> you know, going and like doing weird rituals and getting and in the dirt. And, exactly yeah yeah much less about that pure mind of zen and more about that intimate sensual engagement with the mess of life and and um and my, my dad also has this very um his approach to zen buddhism is is very informed by uh, being a deeply compassionate person who's engaged in the world, not seeing it as something you go off and meditate somewhere, but actually something that allows you to show up more fully to creating change in the world and actually d directly, like, you know, in his work as a social worker, in his work as a therapist, directly actually moving out and, and supporting communities. Um, and so I think that really informed my engagement with spirituality too. And then on, this, on the side of my mom, it was more this, this, this sense of a lack of any tolerance to bullshit, being alerted to bullshit. And so not get it helped me not get like swept up into the sort of up and out spirituality of like ascension and actually really develop a good nose for if a teacher was deeply grounded in what they were teaching and what they were teaching was grounded and actually how things work on the earth if you're a human with a body um, and not getting swept up as it's easy to do when you're first starting on this path in, in teachings that weren't grounded in that same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So they, you had intense like body work and intense mind. Exactly. Come together and we have language. Yeah. <laughs> yes, here I am. <laughs> well, yeah. thanks for being here, Langston. It's so nice to see you. It was so good to talk with you as always, Vanessa. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Langston Khan. Be sure to pick up his book, Deep Liberation, Shamanic Tools for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma. Visit his website, LangstonKhan.com, and follow him at Instagram, at LangstonKhan. That's L-A-N-G-S-T-O-N-K-A-H-N. You can also listen to his lectures from the Psychoanalysis Art and Occult series of events at Rendering Unconscious, episode 57, For Shades and Shadows, How Our Unresolved Ancestors and Denied Selves Hold the Keys 
to our collective liberation, which he first presented at our conference Rewriting the Future, 100 Years of Esoteric Modernism and Psychoanalysis in Murano, Italy. You can also listen to Rendering Unconscious episode number 63, The Thing Which Knowledge Can't Eat, Gods, Archetypes, and the Mind, originally presented in London at the first Psychoanalysis Art and Occult Conference in 2016. Links to everything can be found in the text accompanying this episode. You can visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or the podcast main website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. From Tripart Books 2019. For more information, you can visit our publisher's website, tripart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L. Your support is very appreciated. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast and all of my other creative endeavors. vessel for such spirits, and strong dead of both of lineage and of adoption. Symposium, recitation of Shakespearean about society, being kinder to you, me. Then, the two other picks are of the old burrows, declared this the best. Congolese magic is unparalleled. History we have breaks from each other. Believe in any space. So when we re-enter the scene, returning or anywhere really, it's fine. The spirits just don't like pee and fuck in the pool. Sexual nature. 
grappling with sexuality with ones. But when I feel the psychoanalytic snakes and lemon balm contained a small, out to perform a ritual or attend the next program, we're cutting ourselves out of our honor my lineage with another of identity, just more so to honor my lineage, the apocryphal back and change hour, whose object, a biological, first rays of movement, physical before we reproduction 